Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You know, as I reflect on my strengths and weaknesses as a preacher, I realize that one thing I've been really bad at is giving uh, self-help advice. So I wanted to start this morning by giving you some self-help advice. I wanted to give you the, the secret to having great confidence. The secret to having great confidence in every area of life. And here it is. This is worth writing down. This is a secret you may not know. I'm going to reveal it to you, and this is going to change everything. The secret to great confidence is inexperience. The more inexperience you have, it seems, the more confidence you have. Because much of our confidence comes from not having been tested. The people who are the most confident, the most assured of their ability, the most certain in their beliefs, are usually the people who just haven't been tested. If you think about this, the things you believe with confidence, the things you are certain of, have you ever really questioned them? And here's a question for you. I want you to think about this. Are you? Are you what? No, are you? Do you exist? Do you exist at all? How do you know that you exist? These are the kinds of questions we don't usually ask ourselves, and we probably shouldn't ask ourselves. They seem ridiculous, and yet, if you stop and think about whether or not you exist and whether or not you can know that you exist, it's a little bit harder to prove that with any certainty than it ought to be. And a lot of our certainties are like this. A lot of the things you think are just self-evident and obviously true. If you try to justify those beliefs, it's not easy. Whether you are a fan of philosophy or not, uh, you may recognize... uh, This phrase, cogito ergo sum, or in English, I think, therefore I am. This is perhaps the most famous or the second most famous philosophical utterance in all history. It's, of course, Descartes, the founder of Cartesian rationalism. And his project was essentially to find a foundation for knowledge, something that he could be sure of. Like something he could know with certainty. So he looked at all of the traditional things that people thought they could know for certain, and he realized, I can't really know those things with any certainty. And he finally came up with this. He could be certain of one thing. He could be certain that he existed because he was thinking. You're like, okay, well, good. There's at least one thing, one anchor that we can hold on to. We exist if we're thinking. Well, even Descartes, if you, if you read The footnotes has to concede, kind of in passing, that, of course, for this to make sense, you also need to assume the existence of God. But pay no attention to that. I think, therefore, I am. Even something as simple as establishing your own existence is a little bit difficult. Fortunately, people don't typically challenge us on that. Nobody comes up to you on the street and says, you know what, I don't really think you are. If they did, we might be a little less confident. Because it turns out that the more you ask, the more you question, the more you push against your assumptions, the harder it is to be assured of anything. 
when Lori and I were first dating, people would come up to me and say, are, are you sure she's the one? Are you sure it's love? And I'm like, yeah, of course, obviously. But you get asked that question a hundred times. Like the, the day before the wedding, people say things, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you really, really sure? And you're like, uh, yeah, I think I am. I think I am. In time, you become a little more sure. In the church, that's not really the question we ask. Right? The question we ask is, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you really saved? Are you really saved? Did you pray the prayer? Oh, you did. But did you mean it? How much did you mean it? Were you sincere? Were you really sincere? Sincere enough? And the more you ask those questions, the more you start to scratch your head and think, well, was I? Like, how sincere are you meant to be? Like, was I more than 50% sincere? Did I, did I mean it with most of my heart? Like, how much of my heart did I need to mean it with? And the more you ask those questions, the less certain you become of the answers. I don't know if I meant it. I don't know how sincere I was being. I remember the moment, but I also remember I was thinking of something else and, and oh no. And so we have this constant quest for assurance. We seek assurance for things that we're meant to be certain of. Like we go out into the world, we proclaim ourselves to be Christians. We are people who are, are in union with Christ. Are you really? doesn't help when the author of Hebrews keeps doling out these apostasy warnings. Be sure that you don't fall away. Be sure that you don't fall away. You're not falling away, are you? Are you? I don't know. I, I, I felt pretty confident in Hebrews 1, and now we're in Hebrews 6, and it's like he keeps saying this. Maybe he knows something I don't. It, it shakes our confidence. It's hard to have hope when the questions are rattling you this way. Well, this morning, our text is going to begin in uh, chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 11. And we'll go through the entire sixth chapter of Hebrews. And the theme that we're looking at is hope. Hope. Hope as assurance, whether we have it or not. So first, we're going to talk about false hope. And then we're going to talk about hopelessness. And then finally, we'll talk about true hope. So let's begin with false hope. False hope. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11, we read these words. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We'll stop there. You see, in reading that passage, we have come full circle. Six weeks ago, when we started looking at the book of Hebrews, before we dove into chapter 1, we jumped forward to this passage to see that in this 
first half of the book, we're getting what's meant to be a kind of review. We're being told things that are elementary, that are basic doctrines of Christianity, things we should already know, but all too often we need to be taught all over again. Things we should be able to teach, but instead we're difficult learners. We've come full circle. We've now worked our way through six chapters. We are at that point where we began. And what we see here, I hope, is we see this this language of immaturity in a slightly different way. As the author of Hebrews addresses the, the spiritual immaturity, the doctrinal immaturity of the people, I want you to see that what he's trying to do is shake them out of a false hope. They have a false hope, a false confidence, a false assurance because of their immaturity. These are people, we're told, who are now dull of hearing. They're not listening any longer the way they used to be listening. They've closed their ears a little bit to what they should be learning. They are content with the little knowledge that they possess. And when people are content with the knowledge they have, it's because they believe it is sufficient. They have all that they need. They know all that they need to know. We talked earlier about the confidence of people who lack experience. The hardest people to educate are the people who know everything that they need to know. They don't have any gaps that need to be filled. These are the people being spoken to. They're content being fed on milk. They're content having to have the basic doctrines of the faith explained to them, taught to them, over and over again. These are people who, despite the the time that they've been in Christ, still live as newborn babes. They still live in need of basic instruction. They are not growing. They're not growing. Because they find themselves in this immaturity. But ironically, the immaturity does not create a lack of confidence. But the immaturity doesn't drive them to seek maturity. They possess an immaturity that's very self-satisfied. They're immature, but they're very pleased being where they are at. They're content not to know what they don't know. So why is this a false confidence? I'm sure that those people in that church being written to, those were not necessarily people who deeply doubted their salvation, their standing in Christ. They felt reasonably confident of it. They had reasonably good assurance that they were in Christ, that they were part of his church. Why was that a false hope? Well, I'm saying it was a false hope or false confidence because they had not been tested. They had not been tested. And confidence that hasn't been tested is self-confidence. If they were content with what little knowledge they had, it was because they had something else, some other strength, to balance out that relative ignorance, and that other strength was themselves. They were content in themselves, and being content in themselves, they didn't need more knowledge than they had. Their assurance relied on themselves. Put another way, their, their hope relied on their not having been challenged. If you struggle for an example of exactly this state of mind, Scripture gives us a pretty good one in the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately before Jesus' arrest, 
and his imprisonment, his unjust trial and execution, Jesus prophesies to Peter. He says, you're going to deny me. And you remember Peter's response. He doesn't say, oh no, well, that's, that's terrible to hear. I, I, I regret this so much. Peter corrects Jesus, right, strongly. He sets Jesus straight. He says, look, <laughs> these other people, they may deny you, but not me. Get real. This is not going to happen, Jesus. Don't worry. I've got your back. And yet, Peter, when he is tried, turns out he doesn't pass the test. He doesn't pass the test. Now, when you read the epistles of First Peter, you read letters written by a man who does not seem to lack assurance. But I think the assurance of Peter when he's writing those letters, it's very different from the kind of confidence he possessed in those early days. It was not a confidence born out of his belief in himself and the strength of his character. Something had happened to shift the focus of Peter's confidence away from himself onto something else. It's not good to be immature. We ought to grow in faith, and one of the reasons to grow, one of the reasons to mature, is to get beyond false hope. And here's the good thing. I'm not saying to you that, that you may be immature in your faith, and so your first action step after we leave here is to go out and get tested so that you can have real confidence. The nice thing is God's going to take care of that. You don't get to have untested faith. Your faith will be tested. You will be tested. Your confidence will be shaken. Today, tomorrow, in the future, it's going to happen. You don't need to worry about that. The thing to be focused on is what you do. How you respond to those tests and trials. So the false hope of immaturity is not something to put our confidence in. After speaking about that, we look not at false hope, but at literal hopelessness. The hopelessness of apostasy. I don't know that we've defined this term before, so I just want to give you like a brief definition. Uh, I've mentioned before there are things called apostasy warnings, warnings against apostasy throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, apostasy isn't just unbelief. Right, So it's not just that there are people in the world who don't believe in Jesus, and those people are apostates. An apostate is someone who is part of the, the community of Christ, a person who is part of his body, the church, this, this visible representation of the people of God who knows the gospel and rejects the gospel, who rejects what they know. That's what we're talking about when we talk about apostasy, the rejection of benefits that you've experienced in Christ's body to church. So listen to these words. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, 
and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. There are a couple of things to observe here. The first thing I want you to see is the strength of the language that's used to describe this apostate's experience of grace. Like we're being told that this is a person who has been enlightened, who has tasted the heavenly gift, has shared in the Holy Spirit, has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So we're not talking about a superficial knowledge, a superficial understanding. We're not talking about someone who one day switched on the television and it so happened that a TV preacher was was giving a sermon and they heard the gospel in passing. We're talking about people who are part of this visible community of Christ. Like people who are among that community, people who professed faith in Christ, and who enjoy benefits of being involved in Christ's visible church. Now, a lot of times we think about the church, we think about the church as if it were a, a sort of club for religious people. Right? We have a shared interest in being religious, and so we get together and, and talk about religious stuff together, the way other people who are into sports or books or whatever get together and they talk about the things that they're passionate about. Our sort of religious hobby is what brings us together. But here, the, the vision of the church is very different. The vision of the Holy Spirit is very different. And the benefits of the Spirit even are felt by people who turn out to be not in union with Christ. There's a good that comes from being in the church. There's a good that comes from being exposed to the gospel that is real. It is real. And yet, to fall away from that, to turn your back on that, to reject it, is to be utterly hopeless. How do you bring back the person who rejects all of this? How do you do it? It's really hard because, he says, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now think about that. Like, why is it such a hopeless situation? I mean, we all know, right, if, if you've been in the church long enough, you've seen this happen before, right? You've seen people who were part of the church that you would have said, yes, that person is in Christ. That person professes Christ, and I believe it. I see in them something that I, I recognize in this person, a fellow believer. And then, later on, they reject it all. And when they talk about it, it's like, no, that, that stuff, it's not real. That wasn't real. That was a phase I was going through. We've all experienced that. And we've also experienced this other thing, where people that, that were, were with us and then left us, rejected Christ, later come back. They return. It's, it's joyous. I mean, the Westminster Confession says it, it may be in the case of God's elect that for a season they do fall away, that they are given over to, to the passions of their heart, to sin, and yet they are not finally abandoned. He does bring them back to himself. And yet, again, the author of Hebrews tells us 
that to restore again to repentance someone who has rejected all this, it's difficult next to impossible. It is impossible. So why the hopelessness? I think there are a lot of layers to this, but one thing I want you to see, just in really practical terms, is that your heart is seeking something. God has made you to be a worshiper, and if you will not worship Him, you will worship something else. You are seeking something to idolize. And when you do that, when you're seeking, the last place you look is the place you already know is empty. I knew the gospel. I know all that Christianese stuff. I know there's nothing to that. That's why I rejected it and I moved on to other things. For the person who's done that, for the person who knows the sacrifice that Christ has made and rejects it, what other sacrifice is there to atone for sin? To reject the best save for last? That is the definition of hopelessness. There is no hope if we reject Him. Look at the metaphor that's used. The end of that passage, verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. That should make you think of some other passages in Scripture. This kind of language of a field being planted and bringing forth fruit or, in some cases, thorns. This is um, in John 15. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Listen to these words. This is John 15, picking up in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It seems obvious to me that the author of Hebrews, at this point as he's writing these words, has in mind the words of Christ. The words of Christ. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will be fruitful. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you are in me, then you will inevitably be fruitful. And if what you bear is not fruit, if what you bear is thorns, then you will be pulled up like a weed and thrown away. The parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Again, Jesus speaks in, in these same ways. He's talking about what happens when the seed of the gospel is planted in different kinds of soil. What are the results? So in Matthew 13, what's great about this is it's one of those instances where Jesus gives one of his baffling parables and then he explains it afterwards to his disciples. So here's the parable. This is Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. 
Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So again, the gospel is like a seed being sown, and people's reaction to it varies. Sometimes that reaction is outright rejection, but sometimes it looks a little bit different than that. When he explains the parable, here's how he explains it. This is still in Matthew 13, but picking up in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. It's like the birds coming down. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And isn't this what we've been talking about? The, the false hope of, of a belief that has not been tested. When it is tested, it is shown to be rootless. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So when the author of Hebrews makes this contrast between the land that is watered, the ground that is sown, and says that if it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God, that's where the seed of the gospel takes deep root and bears fruit. When he talks about it bearing thorns and thistles, it being worthless and near to being cursed, its end is to be burned, he's referring to that, that apparent rootedness that turns out not to be when it is tested. So there's the false hope of immaturity and the hopelessness of apostasy. And it's interesting because I imagine the people reading the book of Hebrews must have had some, um, some doubts. This is the kind of letter we get. We don't get one of those letters congratulating us for all that we've sacrificed for Christ and telling us to keep it up and encouraging the other churches to model themselves and our behavior. What's going on? We must be really bad. We must not be very good Christians. They must have been doubting some of the false assurance that they had. But it's interesting, in a coda, a little uh, passage at the end of these observations, the author of Hebrews actually points out, although you are immature, you are not hopeless. Which I think is good news. Good to hear. This is uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, promises. So, 
He calls them out for immaturity. But then he reassures them that just because you're immature doesn't mean you're hopeless. I still have hope for you. I don't believe that this warning is true for you. The, the, the outcome that I'm talking about, this being weeded and, and burned, this isn't you that I'm talking about. I have hope for you, he's saying. But why? Why does he have hope? What is it that, that makes him optimistic? It's the fruit that they bear. Right? He sees that they do things, that they are obedient in ways that use his words, that belong to salvation. We'll often say, and I think we're right to say this, you really can't judge the heart of another person. It's hard enough to know yourself, let alone to know the heart of another. And yet, and yet, what we're being told here is that salvation, like being in union with Christ, that has a, a result. That has an impact. It results in the bearing of fruit. And those fruit are visible. Those are actions that are made manifest that that can be seen by the eyes. It involves love. It involves work. It involves serving the saints. This is what people do when they are in union with Christ. This is what they do. And because he sees them doing these things, maybe not as much as they should, maybe not as, as as faithfully as they should, or with as much understanding as they should have, but he sees in them fruit of salvation. And so when he looks upon them, he sees the immaturity, but he does not feel hopeless. He sees that God is working in them. The Spirit is working in them. Full assurance. He talks about, he wants you to have full assurance kind of assurance that comes from uh, having hope until the end, that comes from enduring testing. That's the kind of assurance that comes through perseverance. It's the kind of assurance that comes from bearing fruit. Bearing fruit, seeing in yourself work that belongs to salvation. So, I want to make a point in passing here that has to do with election and predestination. Because you could read words like this and say, well, okay, you're warning me not to fall away, but I have a trump card. I'm elect. Therefore, none of this applies to me. I don't need to worry about this. This bearing fruit thing, that's not important to me because I happen to know that I was chosen in God before the foundation of the world. And so we often imagine that uh, the doctrine of election and this kind of an admonition kind of cancel one another out. And while we may feel a momentary twinge of uncertainty, we can be assured by the fact of election that we need pay no attention to these warnings of the author of Hebrews. But I want to say to you that that's not the right way to look at the doctrine of election. The way that people think about election is election functions as a sort of shortcut around everything else. Election is the thing that gives you assurance of salvation when your life points in the opposite direction. I don't bear any fruit. I I don't do any of the work that belongs to salvation, but I can have confidence in my election. Now, 
Because election isn't the thing that gets you around the rest of salvation. Election is like the first thing in a chain of work that God is doing in you. When you see in yourself the fruit that is born of salvation, you can look back into your history, even before your history, and you can find it rooted in God's loving choice. But what you cannot do is see no fruit. Instead, see thistles everywhere you go and assure yourself that despite this, you don't need to worry because you were chosen from the very beginning, the frozen chosen. And I want to say to you that, that all of that false assurance is another kind of immaturity. It's a failure to understand what the Bible is teaching when it teaches us things like election and predestination. This is not doctrine meant to assure us despite the evidence of our eyes. This is actually meant to give us assurance that the work He has begun in us, the visible work that we see with our eyes, has more of a foundation than we can really appreciate. So that we can have more hope than we could have from the evidence of our eyes. It's not so that we can have hope despite the fact that we produce no works that belong to salvation. It's that we can have a hope that runs deeper than merely relying on the works that you can see in your life that are fruit of salvation. You see what I'm saying? To give more assurance than you can have by looking at the good that you do. Not to assure you that despite the good that you don't do, everything is fine. I hope that makes sense. So they are immature, but they're not hopeless. What they need to have is they need to be pointed to a source of true hope. So that's our last point, true hope. The true hope that comes from union with Christ. Here we pick up in verse 13, chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and on all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we've seen the false hope, the false assurance that comes through immaturity and the hopelessness that comes from rejecting Christ. And now we discover that true hope comes by being in union with Christ. True hope, true hope comes from the assurances of Christ's work rather than our own. So why is this true hope? What's different about this hope that we're being pointed to? Well, the difference is this is true hope because testing has stripped us of every hope but Christ. And Christ is secure. It's not that we go through testing and as a result of that testing we grow stronger and stronger. 
And we're so strong that suddenly we, we cannot entertain doubt. Testing doesn't build you up. In a lot of ways, testing tears you down. When you are tested, when you are tried, when you go through difficulty in life, it doesn't make you like, like a better person. It makes you a more broken person, a person who hurts a little more, a person whose hopes have been a little more dashed, but also, by the grace of God, a person who's not looking in the same direction as you were before. The purpose of testing is to show you that your hope is in the wrong thing. Testing comes into our lives and it shows us that the things we were relying on, our good choices, our foresight, the, the power of our character, the strength of our relationships, all of those things were not good things to put our hope in. All of them fail when weight is put on them. But one thing doesn't fail. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that bears the weight of the world. The purpose of testing is not to build us up in ourselves in the way that, you know, if we pump iron, we break down the muscles so that they get stronger. The purpose of testing is to strip away all that false hope. Strip away all the things that we are adding to Christ. So that we have nothing left but Him. So that He can be our only hope. So that what we profess with our mouths becomes true. And we recognize, apart from Jesus, I have no hope. Apart from Jesus, I have no strength. Apart from Jesus, there is no fruit to come out of this vine. Testing purifies us. You think of the way that a, a blacksmith makes steel. This was especially true in the old days. And you imagine that hammering out of the steel billet on a forge. And the reason for that is to literally blast out the impurities, right? The slag, the impurities that are falling off and leaving just that red hot molten core. It is less than what it was before. It was hammered. But it is better than what it was. It is purer than what it was. Trials hammer us. They beat away at us. But in the end, they purify. If we look for hope in ourselves, we will have false hope or we will have no hope. So we have to look to Him. And God wants us to. God wants us to see the unchangeable character of His purpose. Like He wants you to see that your salvation stretches back, that it has a history behind it, that there is something unchangeable, that it is anchored. And it is anchored in something stronger than yourself. So that if you seek assurance that you are in Christ, the thing that you don't have to do, you're wondering, am I one of the saved? Will I be saved? You don't need to Harken back to a moment in time when you prayed a prayer and ask yourself how sincerely you prayed it. How much you meant it and whether the words you used were the right words. And you also don't need to tally up the good deeds that you've done and the bad deeds that you've done and weigh those things and, and determine whether or not the good outweighs the bad. What you must do is look to Christ. Look to Christ. 
It's as simple as that. Don't look to your works. Don't look to your sincerity. Don't look to the goodness of your heart. Just look to Him and always to Him for your assurance. He is the anchor. His faithfulness is the anchor. When we talk about salvation, we often theologically talk about it in the context of, of the covenant of grace. God is always making covenant with His people. He condescends to us. He enters into His agreements with us. And even when we are faithless, He is faithful to the promise that He has made. When theologians talk about this covenant of grace that, that spans the history of Scripture, one of the fine points of the doctrine is this. When you're asked this question, of who is the covenant of grace made with? You know, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant that the author of Hebrews mentions, who are the parties to that? It's God the Father and it's Abraham. Right? This is an agreement between God and Abraham. Abraham is going to get rewards in return for things that Abraham is going to do. But who is it that God makes an agreement with in this covenant of grace of salvation? We often think of it as an agreement between God and us. God has come down and made an agreement with you to save you. That's not it. God has made a covenant with Jesus Christ. The one who must keep the obligations of that agreement is Jesus Christ. That is a promise for Jesus and all who are in Him. If you are in Him, then you inherit that promise of grace. So if you question the strength of it, the groundedness of it, if you question the, the security of that salvation, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Will He keep His promises? Will He do what is required of Him? Yes. And yes. And yes. It's not easy always to look to Jesus. Constantly we struggle to do this. And constantly as we're tested, our heads are turned back to the cross. And everything that we try to put in its place melts away. is hammered away. So that we're left with our eyes filled with Christ. The purpose of the warnings is not to make us doubt. Let me put it this way. The purpose of the warnings is to make us doubt ourselves. So that we can open our eyes and see Christ. Put our trust in Christ. And see Christ as the anchor of all our hope. When we do that, we have the true hope that comes from being one with Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.